Welcome to the world of critical care. Today we will be talking about Ringer's lactate. Now this is an increasingly popular crystalloid that is used for a wide variety of situations. And I think in many ways it's really surpassing normal saline for how often it's used. But before we kind of jump head first into Ringer's lactate, I wanted to tie up a couple loose ends on our discussion of normal saline as a crystalloid. And in particular, because when I finished the episode, an example came to mind of a patient experience I had about a year ago that I think really highlights something you should always be thinking about with crystalloids. Just because they're given intravenously does not mean that's where it stays ultimately. So about a year ago, we had a rapid response patient that had an initial septic presentation. He was post-op day five. He'd had a, he had a cardiac procedure done. He had had some trouble eating the last couple days. He had had some stomach distension. He hadn't really felt good. The night before, he had gone on a walk in the unit and was saying he was having a lot of burping. Overnight, he was having trouble sleeping, complaining of stomach pain. That morning, around 8 o'clock, the day shift nurse goes in and the patient looks diaphoretic He's sweating. He's tachycardic, clearly distended stomach. The nurse rightly calls a rapid response, and we bring that patient to our ICU. So pretty quickly, we can understand. We're starting to worry about some sort of bowel obstruction. We know we clearly have a septic presentation. So very rapidly, we end up putting an arterial line in the patient. The patient gets a central line. We initiate fluid boluses initially along with vasopressors because we're starting to have a pretty precipitous drop in his blood pressure, but also his level of consciousness at this time. This happens over about a 30-minute period. And so we've given multiple liters of fluid boluses. And in this situation, we did do LR. So we've got several fluid boluses in. We haven't really changed our presser requirement. We're still trending up on our pressers. At this point, we start worrying because we've gone from a couple liters nasal cannula to now we're, we're maxed on our high flow cannula and we're starting to think, okay, what's next? And our ICU doctor decides that we really need to intubate the patient and that what also needs to happen is that we need to be able to decompress the stomach. And so at this point, we're able to intubate our patient, we're able to decompress the stomach, and over a period of an hour, we ended up decompressing over four liters of fluid from the stomach. What was interesting, though, is that over this approximate hour where we've decompressed the stomach, the patient's been intubated, our vasopressor requirement starts to escalate dramatically to the point where we're on max doses of norepinephrine, we're running vasopressin at much higher doses than we normally would. We've added epinephrine now, and we're doing multiple fluid boluses now additionally. We're starting to have some issues now, of course, with our acidosis, so we're trying to correct our pretty severe acidosis, so now we're, we're trying to figure out how we can manage this situation. What's interesting is in these situations is you tend to get very focused on the things that are right in front of you, you see a septic patient. So you're thinking, okay, 
blood pressure, blood pressure, blood pressure, you're thinking, okay, we can, we can increase our, our pressing mechanism. You know, we can press more, we can increase with our fluids and we're, and you get very focused on that. But what you don't realize is you just intubated a patient and they're 40% and five a peep. But 10 minutes later, you just went up and they're on 60%. And then you look over and you see the RT and he just bumped them up to 10 a peep. And then you notice that we've got multiple critical care docs in the room. And then one, again, notices the sat dropping a little bit. And we, again, you quickly find yourself escalating vent settings. So in the midst of being on absolute max dose pressors, you're giving fluid bolus after fluid bolus. You're talking with your general surgeons about potentially getting this patient into the OR to, to do uh, an X-lap to see what's going on with the abdomen. You don't realize that over that period of an hour, we now are on maximal vent settings. And very quickly, we realized that our pulmonary edema was so severe that we ended up doing a bedside cannulation for VV ECMO just to be able to oxygenate our patient. What happened, of course, is we have our septic response. We have that severe capillary permeability. All of that fluid we were dumping into the patient eventually ends up in the third space. And it's something that can happen very rapidly. And that's one of the challenges with crystalloids is that they can provide that immediate effect, but many times within about an hour, we lose a significant amount of that volume into that interstitial space. And that is what happened in this situation. It's something I've always remembered is that we might be administering boluses, but over time that fluid could end up in our pericardium. It could end up causing pulmonary edema. We could have it where it's creating just third space swelling. These are all things to think about with our fluids. This also brings up an interesting point, though, about something that I kind of forgot to mention when we talk about colloids versus crystalloids. And that has to do with the amount you give versus how much does that actually resuscitate the intravascular space. So let's take a hypothetical. We have a patient that we want to increase their intravascular volume by one liter. To increase a patient's volume by one liter, there's a, there's a generally wide variety of arguments to the exact amount you need. But there are people suggesting anywhere from three liters to five liters of crystalloid is required to increase that intravascular volume by one liter. In comparison, 500 milliliters of albumin, of 5% albumin, will provide the equivalent one liter intravascular resuscitation. That's something that I think is always worth remembering in terms of colloids versus crystalloids. Just because you put one liter into the intravascular space does not mean you really end up with one liter in your intravascular space. And that's something to think about when we start doing fluid resuscitation. The type of fluid that's used is critically, critically important. Now, 
let's go ahead and jump into Ringer's Lactate. Now, this is a solution that you'll hear called all sorts of things. You'll hear it called LR. Some people call it lactated ringers. You'll hear ringers lactate. You'll hear just ringers. Some people call it Hartman's solution. And so what, what on earth does this mean? So in general, going way back to the early 1900s, the solution initially was called ringer's solution. So ringer's solution did not have lactate. So ringer's solution was sodium, potassium, calcium, and chloride. And the goal by that physician was to create a fluid that would mimic in general what we had in our bloodstream. Now, we had another person come along by the name of Hartman. Now, Hartman wanted to add sodium lactate. And the reason he wanted to add sodium lactate is because they could use the solution in metabolic acidosis. And so that's where we had the term Hartman's solution. But Hartman's solution is really just a lactated ringer's solution. So when you hear ringer's lactate or lactated ringers, we're referring to that ringer solution with sodium lactate. Now that's important because they're not always lactated, and also every now and then there can be formulations that may or may not have magnesium. That's something that I've seen over time. So it's important to understand what you're looking at, but in general when someone says LR, they're referring to ringer's lactate. So Ringer's lactate is a really interesting solution. So Ringer's lactate is a crystalloid. It is very similar to isotonic normal saline. So it is an isotonic solution. It is 273, 275 approximately milliosmoles per liter, which means we are looking at an equivalent osmolarity in comparison to normal saline. So normal saline is like roughly 286 milliosmoles milli per liter. So we're extremely similar to normal saline. But there's one big difference. The pH of lactated ringers is 6.5. So a slightly alkalotic solution and remember, in comparison to normal saline, normal saline has a pH of approximately 5.5. So we have a slightly more alkalotic solution. Now, lactated ringers has approximately 130 millimoles of sodium, 4 millimoles of potassium. We're looking at approximately 0.67 millimoles of calcium, 109 millimoles of chloride, and then we have 28 millimoles of of lactate, which we can think about as essentially 28 milliequivalents of bicarbonate, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Now, this formulation allows LR to be used in a wide variety of situations. First and foremost, LR tends to be one of the preferred maintenance fluids when we need to resuscitate a patient over several days due to severe dehydration or whether they just have decreased PO intake and they need to be on a continuous fluid for an extended a period of time. Many studies are suggesting now that normal saline over time can induce a metabolic acidosis. And so because of that, LR encourages a more stable blood pH over time. 
This also tends to be one of the primary fluids used for our burn patients for severe traumas. It also can correct a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. It's commonly used in pancreatitis. It interestingly is the preferred resuscitative fluid in hyperkalemic patients. And it's also in septic shock, the preferred now fluid for resuscitation over normal saline. Now, there's a few contraindications to LR. One of the primary ones is is severe hepatic failure. So if we have severe hepatic failure because of the sodium lactate and the the process the lactate goes, it's processed in our liver. So if our liver is having acute hepatic failure, that's something we want to think about. Additionally, we want to think about metabolic alkalosis. If we're highly alkalotic, then it's always a concern about giving LR. Another thing to think about is that we do not like to administer blood products with LR. It's the same reason why when we get four or five units of blood, we want to be thinking about our blood calcium levels being low. The reason is that calcium binds with citrate. Citrate is a stabilizer in the blood. What's the problem with that? The calcium binds to the citrate. We form a precipitate called calcium citrate. If we're infusing blood products with the citrate, that's our issue. Now, the citrate, when we're giving units of blood, typically we have to give quite a few units of blood to see a decrease in our serum calcium levels. But if we're infusing these in the same line, there's a very real concern, and which is why we always use normal saline in place of lactated ringers for our resuscitation. And that's important because sometimes we're, you're in a mass transfusion situation where you're maybe using a mass transfuser and you're dumping different blood products in it and you've got like six different cooks in the kitchen and maybe you've got an additional line that you've got a, a fluid bag hanging and someone wise in a blood product. It's just important to keep an eye on what's going on in those types of situations. And I always find it helpful. Something I've been doing lately is I will try as best I can, if I have an LR bag hanging, to hang it on one side of the patient. And then all the blood products and NS I'll try to keep on the other side just to try to keep kind of a mental separation because it's very easy to make that mistake. Now, there are two situations that I want to specifically bring up because they're very commonly misunderstood in relation to LR. The first one is we should not administer LR to a patient who's hyperkalemic. And and initially you think about it, you go, okay, I've got a elevated serum potassium level. I really shouldn't administer any more potassium to that patient. But interestingly, the research is quite counterintuitive. The current research suggests that actually the most important thing to think about is where is our potassium stored? And the answer to that is in our cells and that we know those concentrations. Remember, inside our cell, our potassium level is about 140 milliequivalents per liter. Outside the cell, we're talking about about 4 milliequivalents per liter. Overwhelmingly, our potassium levels are intracellular. What that means is anything we administer that could alter the potassium shift from inside a cell to outside a cell often will have a much more dramatic effect than it would administering a solution that introduces serum potassium. 
Now, why do I bring that up? Because normal saline has a concerning effect that the literature shows that it actually causes an increase in our chloride anions, which leads to a me- to a me- this metabolic acidosis that actually increases our potassium concentrations. And again, a lot of it has to do with altering our potassium shifts because there's so much potassium inside our cells, small, small alterations in shifts from potassium inside to outside our cell can have dramatic serum potassium changes. So the research currently says hyperkalemic patients, especially if you have a septic patient who's also hyperkalemic, you do not want to administer normal saline. The preference is actually LR. Interestingly, too, a highly elevated potassium level, when we introduce potassium at approximately a four milliequivalent level, so again, roughly normal, because of our law of averages, typically the the patient's serum potassium can actually often start to lower, not increase. That's one of the critical things to remember. Just because a patient has an elevated potassium does not mean you should not use LR. And in fact, NS is often a worse fluid to choose. Now, misconception number two is a bit more challenging. And in many ways, honestly, we could spend an entire episode just jumping into this topic. But something you'll hear often is this. I have a septic patient and their lactate's through the roof. Why on earth would I give them a solution that has lactate in it? That doesn't make any sense. And it's important to remember that sodium lactate is not going to raise our serum lactate levels in a septic patient. And often, one might think, well, I will just give normal saline since there's no lactate in it. But the reality is, we can think of our LR solution as essentially having bicarbonate in it. Now, what's interesting is that lactate, the sodium lactate, acts as a buffer system. So, so lactate is able to accept a proton and form lactic acid. What's unique, too, though, is that lactate can actually be metabolized back into pyruvate, which then, going through cellular respiration, we get CO2 and water. From the CO2 and water, we're able to get carbonic acid. Now, carbonic acid ultimately can disassociate, and we end up with bicarbonate. And so because of that, as we introduce that sodium lactate into our system, we're actually able to increase our bicarbonate levels, which is incredibly valuable, especially in our non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. So remember, our anion gap metabolic acidosis states, those are things like DKA, or we're talking about true lactic acidosis. I just remember a brief story about this. Just recently, we had a post-operative patient. We're about to get them off the ventilator. We did an arterial blood gas. And, you know, everything looked good, except they were just a little bit acidotic. And we were looking at it, and we looked through it. CO2's fine, but their blood pH was 7.28. And we kind of looked down, and we see their bicarbs 15. And so they order a quick LR bolus, 500 mils. We check it back. All right, we look at our bicarbs 20. Our pH is back. It's been corrected. Extubate the patient. We can think of lactated ringers as essentially also a way to provide bicarbonate, which opens up a wide range of doors for uses 
in fluid resuscitation. In fact, there's a really interesting world of pH-guided fluid resuscitation. That's something that I think would be worth an entire episode on because you really start to challenge a lot of your previously held beliefs about why we would or would not resuscitate with different fluids. Well, I hope today was helpful. I think when you start to talk about these topics, you realize just how much there is out there that you could dig into. I think just from today's episode, you see 10 more episodes that could show up. And I, and I hope to revisit many of these in much greater depth. But I hope you've been able to walk away today, at least with a little bit more knowledge about LR and, and some of the misconceptions behind it, and I think also some of the special uses for it. The next episode coming out next week will be on packed red blood cells. Thanks for listening.